0: hello welcome to rusty sonnets the podcast where i take an old poem read it out give it a thorough going over before i wander off on one my name is Niall. if you have been following me through these podcasts we've just done this little journey and we started off with Shakespeare because he's, he's kind of a place, a good place to start off, really. And then we, we worked our way upwards through history until we got to Claude Mackay, one of the Harlem Renaissance poets, last week. But that's the end of that upward climb through history. We are going to start jumping about all over the place. There will be no historical narrative to this podcast from now on. There might be other themes and stuff that we might follow, but ultimately we're just going to jump all over the place to whatever poet we like. So we had this progression, I guess, from the Renaissance, from the Elizabethan times, uh, through to early modernism. And then and then we kind of put the brakes on. And now we're, we're sort of jumping back through time. And so anyone could maybe, I don't know, of course there's lots of figures missing, but I think there is one particular figure in that little account, as we jumped through the centuries and looked at poetry, there was one particular Figure, I think that was most conspicuous by their absence, um, and that would be John Milton, Big John. So we're going to have our first look at John Milton today. We're going to look at Sonnet 23, Me I Saw My Late Espoused Saint. And I have a lot of love for this sonnet as well. I, I have a lot of love for Milton's particular way of composing sonnets and his particular style. Now, I haven't had a lot of time to prepare this week for my podcast, so this is going to be a quick one, but it's going to be a quick one for a few reasons. One, because my research has been rubbish, and I do like to to remind myself of a lot of stuff and uncover stuff I didn't know as well. That's part of the joy of making this podcast. The other stuff is that um, I just think that Milton, we're going to be going back to him as well. He's definitely someone we going to go back to, and we are certainly going to look at Paradise Lost. I'm going to read out the whole of Paradise Lost, and then talk about the whole of Paradise Lost in a 72-hour podcast. I think SoundCloud will allow me to upload a 72-hour MP3 file. Maybe that's a bad idea. Of course, it's a bad idea. I will look at excerpts of Paradise Lost in the future. Might even do it next week. I don't know. So, so because of that, I don't want to really go all the way through Milton's biography I just want to talk about what's relevant to this this poem and I want to sort of go through what's relevant to his place in relation to the other poets that we've already looked at but John Milton you you know he he is someone who who certainly is put he may not be as celebrated he may he may not be as as a bigger allure for tourists but i think many people if they do put shakespeare up on a massive pedestal in one sense and even even milton wrote a, a fantastic sonnet his first published poem was basically a fan letter to shakespeare about how there there are no suitable monuments to shakespeare but but milton felt that like us loving his work continuing to put on his play reading his work aloud that is monument in itself um But Milton, the funny thing is, is is Shakespeare is commemorated everywhere now. We might not have the world's biggest Shakespeare statue, (laughs) like the Colossus of Stratford or something. But but if there's one person who isn't quite as commemorated and has had just as important an influence on English literature and on, on poetry, it would be John Milton. I mean this is the old cliche about music are you are you an elvis guy or a beatles guy i like to reject that dichotomy completely and choose a different dichotomy of are you a johnny cash guy or are you a david bowie guy but you get the drift um are you i, I think people could say are you a shakespeare guy or a milton guy and I think you can choose both. I don't, you can most people love Shakespeare, but, uh, but and, and but but Milton is just so important. and I think a lot of people that read a lot of poetry really do hold hold Milton in the same esteem that Shakespeare is held in as well. So we are going to look at Milton. We're going to look at why he was such a fantastic poet. We might look at sort of some ideas of how he contrasts with Shakespeare as well, and we are going to look a little bit at his life. So we'll look a little bit at the context of this poem as well. The context of this poem is, is that John Milton, this is a point where where he has um, become blind. Now, this happened, I can't remember the exact age that Milton was, but it's sometime around the 1650s that Milton went blind. It was probably an inherited condition, but some uh, it had a genetic aspect to it. Um, because I think his father had problems with his eyesight as well. We'll look at a little bit of the epoch, actually, that he was part of first. So he he really was, if we're talking about sort of different epochs in English history. Um, Milton was probably part of three very important epochs. So I think the three particular historical epochs and happenings that happened within John Milton's life um, was the English Civil War, which ended with the beheading, of charles the first then john and uh, then of course we have the the lord protector oliver cromwell and uh, the the period that we call the interregnum which is a time between kings spoiler alert how how this this thing ends up and and but also the protectorate which was the which was the monoclous state that was governed by oliver cromwell who was the lord protector of the Protectorate, then Cromwell died, and the Charles II, the monarchy was restored, and Charles II took to the throne. And Milton, who was Cromwell's boy, he was he was very much a he. He not only did he write propaganda for Cromwell, he also was a kind of he was the. I think he, I can't remember right. The, he was a minister for many tongues or something like that. He spoke a lot of languages, both modern and. And classical languages, so but his role was ultimately he was he was the foreign secretary, he was he was the the head of of what would have been would become the foreign office. So he was quite a big shot in the government of Cromwell. But then Cromwell died, and then um, Charles II got rose to the throne. Uh, Charles II, let's just say he he wasn't too fond of a guy that cut his dad's head off. Understandably, I think Cromwell's remains were were dug up and just pitched outside uh, the gates somewhere, so that people could could look upon his remains and an ultimate act of disrespect. But John Milton would have been in trouble, and so he went into hiding. He was imprisoned um, in the Tower after he was caught, and then he was released because of perhaps some influence from um, good friends. And then he lived a quieter life, right in some. Little poem called Paradise Lost. He he concentrated on his poems rather than his political tracts, and and then he died of complications from gout, that good old noble illness that's that affects many poets. A few poets it still affects today, but I know of. So there was a potted history of John Milton. He was married three times. The first time he was married as a younger man. um I, I don't think the, the marriage might have even lasted weeks. It didn't go well. And then he wrote, uh, not long after this marriage ended, he wrote a, a pamphlet in defense of divorce as well. His second wife he married after he went blind. That was Catherine. And she died through childbirth. So she died a few about four months after childbirth. The child died as well. This must have been heartbreaking. It obviously happened a lot more back in these days. But it obviously was heartbreaking. He he managed to marry again, and by all accounts, it was a happy marriage. But this poem was written shortly after the death of his second wife, and that that in itself. He was married to her for for about two years. So from if I if I get my dates right, and I've got them here, um, he was married to her from. 1656 to 1658 so he went blind about four years before before he married her so he never saw her face I think that's an important detail to remember in this poem so I think that's enough to to get on with right now you know the biographical details (laughs) Milton lived a very interesting and event-filled life And I don't see the point in going over all of it in preparation for what is essentially a sonnet about one particular part of his life. We will return to Milton and I think we will have to go through the full whammy biography of Milton when we look at Paradise Lost, especially we'll look at opening, but the opening part of Paradise Lost book one. We won't read the whole of book one. We'll do an excerpt. And if that goes well, then we can we can look at uh, other other moments from paradise lost or we might read other poems by milton such as lycidas so let's read this poem sonnet 23 me i saw my late espoused saint me i saw my late espoused saint brought to me like alcestis from the grave whom jove's great son to her glad husband gave Rescued from death by force, though pale and faint. Mine, as soon washed from spot of childbed taint, purification in the old law did save, and such as yet once more I trust to have full sight of her in heaven without restraint, came vested all in white, pure as her mind. Her face was veiled, yet to my fancied sight, love. Sweetness, goodness in her person shined, so clear as in no face with more delight. But oh, as to embrace me, she inclined. I waked, she fled, and they brought back my night. Hopefully that's already broken your heart a little bit. When I approach a a, a Milton Sonnet. I find that they're not quite as there's there's they're slightly resistant, but as I as I go into them, I I I I get more from them. So I contrast it with Shakespeare's. I think there's something about a lot of Shakespeare's sonnets that have that sing-songy quality that's quite enjoyable on that that first reading, whereas Milton's work, even though I think he's just as humanistic as Shakespeare is. I think Milton's work can perhaps because of the complexity of the ideas, perhaps because of the richness or the intensity of the imagery, perhaps because of these flourishes that we will call Baroque. He was an early Baroque writer. So Baroque being very elaborate classical music or very elaborate architecture. Um, Think of gargoyles. Think of all these little details flourishing uh, on buildings. Those are Baroque. So his poetry has that Baroque quality to it, which makes it a little bit more, a tiny bit more impenetrable than perhaps Shakespeare's poems. For me personally, a lot of his sonnets yield more in subsequent readings. Do you remember a few podcasts ago when I said about how some poems are like painter's mountains and some poems are like climber's mountains? I think, um, as in a painter's mountain... It's a mountain that you just get so much just from looking at it in the distance. You can take, out the ho- take in the whole thing in one look and it's fantastic. And then a climber's mountain is one where it might not look great from a distance, but the real thrill of that mountain is actually getting up close and and personal and traversing and climbing up every little crag and cranny that you can to get to know that mountain. So that's the difference between a painter's mountain and a climber's mountain. And so I say one poem is like a painter's mountain, one poem is like a climber's mountain. Some poems you read first go, you read them out loud, you real get you really get the sense and the music of the poem right away. And then others are more like the climber's mountains. I think Milton's work can be like the climber's mountain. Apart from Paradise Lost, which I think you can read aloud and it just sounds wonderful. But this poem I think some bits can trip up the reader. So let's go through it. Let's just go through the sense of the poem and then we can look about look more at his style and how he did it afterwards. So methought I saw my late espoused saint. That in itself can be quite tricky, but it's it's just that. So late espoused, late as in she's passed away, espoused. It was his spouse, saint again, someone who's, you know, one qualification of being a saint is to be dead. So, yes, I said that really cheerfully, didn't I? Is to be dead. Hooray, you're a saint now because you died. But I don't mean that. I just I just mean we, we, we get it. That so methought I saw my late espoused saint. The saint is someone, you know, who's, who's lived a pure life and um, and is seated with God in heaven, perhaps. Brought to me. Like Alcestis from the grave, whom Jove's great son, to her glad husband gave, rescued from death by force, though for pale and faint. Alcestis is uh, from classical mythology. I think it's from a play by Euripides, where Alcestis was. She was. The, she was the bride of King Admetus. Now, King Alcestis, her father, basically said. Any man who is able to yoke a lion and a boar to a chariot shall marry my daughter. Easy peasy, lemon squeezy. So Admetus, he had the moxie. He was able to do it. He was able to, I don't know how he did it, but he got hold of his lion, gets over here. He got hold of a boar, gets over here. And he yoked them to the side, yoked them to a chariot. I don't know what happened afterwards of the lion and the boar. I can imagine the lion might have taken one look at the boar and and thought yummy yummy. I don't know. Who knows? May they should have teamed up. They should have teamed up and then they wouldn't be yoked to the chariot. So Admetus did this job and he and he asked for help from the gods beforehand. So he got help from Apollo. But then, at the wedding feast, he forgot to make a sacrifice to the gods to say thank you for allowing me to do this ridiculous task. But we'll do anything for love, won't we? So, so he, so because of that, they they put loads of snakes in in the marital bed. Now, somehow, there was some kind of in, in, intervention from the gods to the fates. I think they got the fates drunk, and so the fates accepted that someone else could die in his place and so his death was delayed and in the end of course it was Alcestis who put herself forward to die in his place so she died in his place down she went to Hades down she went to the underworld now later on as 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 referenced in this poem again so back into the poem so whom Jove's great son to her glad husband gave Rescued from death by force, though pale and faint. So in this particular telling of the legend, the son of Jove, the son of Jupiter or Zeus, is Hercules, Heracles. Um, Heracles went down to the underworld, probably boffed a few people's noses in, grabbed Del this and just brought her back up and said, you know, here you are, Admetus, here's, here's your wife. All's good. Don't worry about it, mate. So that's the reference, you know. Milton dreamt that he saw his wife brought back into the world of living, just as Alcestis was brought by Heracles to her husband, King Admetus. So, so there we go. We got, we got those first four lines. Next four lines. Mine, as whom washed from spot of childbed taint, purification in the old law did save and such as yet once more, I trust to have full sight of her in heaven without restraint so, so his wife came to him, um, as whom washed from ch- spot of childbed taint. That's a reference, obviously, to to the to the her death after childbirth, um, the washed body, the prepared body. And then he speaks about purification. In the old law, did save. She's able to return because she's been purified in the old law and therefore she's been able to enter heaven i'm guessing she has come from heaven we find out later in the poem that's where he hopes to meet her and such as yet once more i trust to have full sight of her in heaven without restraint came vested all in white pure as her mind now that's interesting because this is this follows on from a from the 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 comma that follows mine so so in the fifth line of a poem mine comma and then all of these these three extra lines and then we get back to what that mine before the comma intruded (laughs) we get back to what it was referring to mine came vested all in white pure as her mind her face was veiled yet to my fancied sight love sweetness in her person shined so clear as in no face with more delight Now, this is an important detail. She has a veil over her face. Why is this? Is it because, so even though he still gets that sense of beauty and goodness that shines from her, her face is veiled so he cannot see her completely. So, what does this represent? What can we say about this? Is it him just being denied full sight of her because maybe that's being saved for him meeting her again in heaven? Or is it because. He went blind before he met her, and therefore he had never seen her face. And so, when he could see in his dreams, even when she came and he recognized it as her, of course he couldn't see her face unless his own fancied sight, as he calls it, his imagination, unless that can conjure up a face for him. And maybe there was, he must have had a face. I mean, who knows? did milton this is the nothing that anyone can find out i guess but did milton have an image of his wife's face it'd be interesting to know if people who went blind invent faces in their in their minds for people that they speak to although what i hear is about people that go blind i'm not going off on one yet this is i think this is all relevant to the poem is that many people who are blind let go of their inner sight and allow other senses to take over so they really do end up missing the visual world because they have to replace it with a world that is informed by touch and sound and other senses and so they actually have to let the visual faculties go so in that sense their world does become darker and then they still dream they still have visual dreams And I think a lot of blind people have spoken about this or people that have lost their sight in life have dreams where they're still in a visual world and then they wake up like at the end of this poem and they're blind again, they wake up into blindness. Now I, I know of one example of where a blind person and I can't remember, it was listening to a podcast called All In All in the Mind. It's an Australian podcast run by the ABC Network. And I do remember them interviewing one person who refused to let go of the visual world. And so they carried on, even in their waking state, living in this rich world of visual imagination, even though it's left them less able through using their other senses to operate and get round in the world. They they just said no. I will not let let go of it. If I cannot be in the real visual world, or in the visual world where my my eyes are reacting to light bouncing um, off my retina and sending messages from my retina to my brain, then I will still have that world existent in my brain, and I will continue to live in the, in my waking hours. So I find that really interesting. But but it's the case for most blind people that they live in a world of darkness in that sense. Or people that have gone blind. They live in a world of darkness without that visual element. But that visual element seems to fire up again whenever they dream. So he didn't see her in life. So I'm guessing because of what I've just said. He didn't have a version of her face in his brain um, when he met her. The last last two lines. Well, they speak for themselves and they're heartbreaking. But oh, as to embrace me, she inclined. I waked. She fled, and day brought back my night. so I think there's a double meaning to this, as they were about to embrace she she vanished, he woke, she fled, and or she inclined she was going to hug him back, but then boom, wake up, and the last line this is something milton doesn't this is something Milton does on purpose, I think which is it's a monosyllabic lines so i don't think it's it's that controversial to say that to use longer words in sonnets gives a a better sense of of rhythm a better sense of the iambic pentameter whereas when we kind of measure out the syllables in single words there's a certain fudding um lack of music to it even if we can read have the five stresses there's a certain sort of just clumpiness clumsiness to it and we can't help but think that that monosyllabic ending reflects well so we have that more lyrical more musical quality to the lines that come before it but when we have the line i waked she fled and they brought back my night Just in the meter itself, we have that sense of things just returning to this regular everyday trudge and we've let go of that, that beautiful, vivid dream world that preceded it. And also we have a slight double meaning, at least from what I see, which is I waked, she fled and they brought back my night. The very, very literal sense in the sense that he dreams at night, but then he wakes into his blindness. They brought back my night. Then there's obviously the sort of contradiction and the slight oxymoronic quality of day brought back my night as well that we know makes sense in a personal sense. But in a general sense, it kind of has that nonsensical quality, which makes it quite an intriguing line to end a poem. And I, I, but I think day brought back night, my night can also say brought back my misery, brought back her absence, brought back the pain I have to live through now, the emotional pain, as well as the physical um suffering of having lived in a visual world and not being able to live in one he had to dictate his work he couldn't write he couldn't read anymore so so much more was taken away from him when his sight was taken um one more thing about this sonnet and about miltonic sonnets in general i think i spoke to you maybe last week i think i did speak to you last week and a few weeks before that about the turn especially in the Petrarchan sonnet, the way that the sonnet changes as it goes along. So there's normally a change, if we're going by the Italian sonnet, there's normally a change eight lines in or around that number. And then, so there's a change of emphasis. There's a shift in tone, perhaps, But there's normally a change or a turn, as it's called, or a volta, as it's called in Italian. And then the poem proceeds along a slightly different path. And normally this is just after halfway through the poem. So normally around the eighth line. And then heading into the final six lines, you get this kind of turn. In a Shakespearean sonnet, it's slightly different, although I think you can find turns in Shakespearean sonnets. But Shakespearean sonnets are often, they have a quality of having four lines, investigating one idea, then it's slightly changing in the next four lines, then it's slightly changing in the next four lines again, and they're finally being a couplet that might summarize or might even subvert the cause. So that's the final two lines that really either sort of, just i don't know really bring it to its head and summarize it or suddenly bring in something slightly contradictory to bring in a bit of tension to the end of the poem what we have in a miltonian or a miltonic sonnet is sort of different in a sense that there isn't a turn and i think this takes a lot of skill so the the, the the argument and i think sometimes we see this in these slightly overwrought bits in the middle of the poem dare I say this about a master like, like Milton, but the poem ultimately precedes the same line of argumentation or it sort of proceeds and changes at a very even rate all through the poem. So there isn't really a sense of a sudden change of emphasis, maybe perhaps in the last line of the poem in this particular example, but mainly with Milton's science, there's a real sense of the part that it's just progressing at a very even and methodical rates all the way through and there's never a dramatic ah but moment throughout the poem and it takes a lot of skill to write like this I think it's because when you, if you are a writer of sonnets if you've ever attempted a sonnet you will find that you will shift your emphasis anyway why normally because the the form is kicking your butt as you're writing it when you use a poetic form but it's like a tussle between your will where you want the poem to go and where the form itself, so the rules of the poem that you're having to comply with, the rules of the poem seem to say, now nah, you're going over here, mate. And I think some of the best sonnets are the ones that are a real tussle between the form and the will of the poet. So the the form is saying, you're going to have to use another rhyme, aren't you? You're going to have to use another word to go with this rhyme. And if you have to use another word, maybe you have to change your subject matter. Maybe we've already veered the poem of course and you have to go somewhere else so that's what the form does so it's about the will of the poet versus the the, the intractable nature of the form and some of the best sonnets sort of come from a real battle between these two of a, of a but i think here we really get a sense that that the form it's just no match for big john big john is just nah no worries this is what i've come here to say and i'm just gonna have to make you break a little bit instead of me breaking what my idea is and that's I think that's that that's the real talent the fact that there is no massive turn there is no massive shift of emphasis apart from maybe the final line which I'm sure was completely intentional in his part that's um that's Milton really imposing his will on the poem and I think this is evident most when in those four lines so the sort of line five to line eight Mine, as whom washed from spot of childbed taint, purification in the old law did save, and such as yet once more I trust to have full sight of her in heaven without restraint. And then came vested all in white, pure as her mind. I think he keeps things on course by shoving in this whopping sub clause between mine and came vested all in white. Instead of mine was dressed in white, he's saying, Mine. Who was washed from from the the taint of childbirth and was purified by the old law as well, um, and I hope to see her that way when she's when we're in heaven, and then carries on. Was dressed in white, so I think that's the point where maybe he's had to have a real real little battle <laughs> with the form there, because I think there's something a little bit unwieldy about that, but I think it works still. But I I find that the mind that's the I think that's one of the lines or one of the segments of the poem that trips up. A lot of readers when they first tackle it. I'm going to leave it there because, as I said, I I I, I don't want to go into too much detail here. I think it's time for me to wander off on one. That was a bit... I curtailed the woo there. Sorry, that was Rick, Ric Flair shouting woo. Anyone who knows the, the, the podcast knows that this is the moment where I, I drop all pretenses at academic rigor and just go off on one sometimes about the poem sometimes about a completely tangential idea and the completely tangential idea now it goes back to something I mentioned before I don't know in what podcast but I mentioned the zen monk Thich Nhat Hanh and how his idea of um the afterlife Stems from a particular line he says, where he says, Where conditions are sufficient, I manifest. When conditions aren't sufficient, I hide. And so he says that people never die. It's just there's a moment when all the conditions are right, and here we are in the world, alive and visible to everyone else. But then something such as the, our body packing in, in one particular way or another, it, one sufficient condition becomes absent and we are hidden again. But I think it's an important distinction. He's saying it's not that we stop existing. We just become hidden. hidden. We don't manifest anymore. We don't become manifest. We are there as part of a latent fabric of possibility and of the universe. But we just not there's, there just isn't enough of it, of the necessary conditions to make us visible and apparent to everyone else. And I, I, like, I quite like that because I think most people from most belief systems whether they be atheistic or whether they be spiritual and believing just like John Milton that they will see their beloved in the afterlife I think a lot of people can still get on with that idea and I think that idea can make things easier for us when we are without people that have been important to us in our lives now there's there's another a philosopher cognitive science scientist as well called um, Douglas Hofstadter and Douglas Hofstadter wrote a very famous book called Godel Escher Bach, An Eternal Golden Braid. Very long book, a book where he tries to get people like me for some reason to write propositional calculus. But he also wrote a book called I Am Am A Strange Loop. And I Am A Strange Loop pretty much talks about the same philosophical idea that he has, which is that the self, so the thing that we call a self, he thinks is something called, that he calls a feedback loop. A feedback loop is something that creates the appearance or the illusion of great depth or even infinity but really it's actually just a particular subroutine going on a loop and catching itself sort of going round and round in circles and perpetuating itself that sounds really abstract so there's an image to help you understand this so he talks about i don't know if you've ever done this when you get an old film camera i'm sure it works with any camera but it's connected to a tv that's the important thing or connected to a monitor and you turn the camera towards the monitor and it suddenly creates this great kind of infinite frame of that vanishes off into the distance and they created i think they created the the effects for the original Doctor Who series opening these kind of strange shapes from this thing but you get it it's suddenly or when you another another way of looking at it might be sort of when you hold a mirror up to a mirror and then it just sort of goes on forever so the feedback loop is when something happens where it creates this illusion of great depth and that's what he thinks the self is the self is like a feedback loop that Turns in on itself, but when it turns in on itself, so when we kind of look at ourselves, or when we have our experience of selfhood, it suddenly creates this massive—I don't know—just array of images. It creates this inf- this image of infinity, so that when we look at on ourselves, we see these great depths. But he says it's sort of an illusion. Now, how is his? How is he relevant? How's Douglas Hofstarter and his ideas of a self relevant to John Milton and relevant to the ideas of of TikNahan that I just spoke about? He's relevant because his wife died and part of I am a strange loop is about how he dealt with the death of his wife. Now, in the same way that blind people are told to let go of the visual world and let other senses creep in, people that have a bereavement are asked to let go ultimately of the people that they shared their life with. That's to get rid of their stuff, to get rid of their clothes, keep a few things, but to get rid of it, most of it, so they can make space in their life. He didn't do this. He did it because he he wanted to keep... um, oh one more thing about it so he kept his her clothes he kept most of her stuff in the house and he still does as far as i know and he talks to her all the time now so he thinks the self is this sort of almost like a computer program i guess or a routine um or a loop A strange loop. He thinks that's what a self is. But we can make copies of our strange loops. So when we get to know someone. We make a little copy of them. Within our own loop. Within our own mind. And that's what what it happens. So people make little copies. Are made of people all the time. And when we have memories of people. That's us replaying the little copy. That we have of them. So his idea was that. If he kept his wife's stuff around him. The fidelity of the copy. The internal copy that he has of his wife. Will be greater you know he'll be able to recreate her more vividly and so that's what he's saying about the strange so that's yeah that's what happens with a strange loop But actually yes but, but but yes she's hidden from the world but she can manifest more if he keeps more of her about so i'm not telling everyone at home that if you miss someone to keep everything that belongs to them I'm I'm using him perhaps as an extreme example, but at the same time, it's the most important person in his life. So so why not? But for you guys, I guess that's just to help you there to say that, yes, maybe you believe that you will see someone ag- again in, in eternity, whether it's someone who's living, maybe it's a relationship that ended, maybe it's uh, a bereavement, but uh, but you you personally in your beliefs do you believe that you will see that person again in the afterlife and that's fine but if it's difficult for you in this current life or for your person who doesn't believe in the afterlife um, the idea that actually yes because you knew someone you already had a little copy of them made that's how you get to know them because you have to create a copy of them in your mind is it comforting to know that actually in that sense they are always with you and while then they'll probably they and in that sense, when conditions are sufficient, they will manifest. When you have a particular thought about them and you can hear their voice in your head and you have a little internal conversation with them, yes, they might not be fully in the world in the sense that they were a being within a body with their own sense of self. But in the same way that you made little copies of them, that person carries on as long as that happens. Which reminds me again. Is this from the film Coco? I can't remember, but uh, the idea that there's a a Latin American or a Mexican idea of deaths, which is you have two deaths, one when your body actually dies and your second death when someone says your name for the last time. And on that cheerful note, I'm going to say goodbye. If you enjoy this podcast, please share it. Please share it via any of your social media or you can share it by telling someone in their ear holes that it's a good podcast and you enjoy it. If you want to leave a nice review, then leave a nice review on Apple Podcasts or iTunes, if you're listening to it that way. If you want to abuse me, then I prefer you to abuse me via Twitter. Um, or you can say, hi Niall, how you doing, via Twitter. That's poet Nile, P-O-E-T-N-I-A-L-L. You can email me as well, sonnets at gmail.com. All one word, RustySonnets. We'll be back next week. Thank you so much for listening this week. I hope you have a fantastic week ahead. I'll try to have a good one and I'll try and be a bit more prepared for my podcast next time round. Oh, I can feel a tickle in my throat but I'm going to cough so I'm going to say goodbye right now. Have a good one. Thank you.